Of all lessons and stories taught in Scripture, perhaps none has been more influential in secular history as those recounted in the book of Exodus. It would be difficult to overstate how influential the ideas in Exodus have been on Western thought, law, morality, and philosophy for thousands of years. Today we'll discuss the origin story, if you will, of the central character in Exodus, the prophet Moses. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to our program, and it is so good to be back. I must apologize for our extended hiatus. This has probably been the most difficult lesson to prepare since we began, and there is just so much material that I've decided to do this in two installments. And so what you're getting now is part one of lesson number 13, and uh, next week or in a few days you'll get the second part. And we took, a, we took a week off to do a conference episode. And then right when I was about to record our Exodus episode, one of my favorite authors, Dennis Prager, came out with a book he's been working on for years. And the release date on his book was two days from the time I was going to record. So I just couldn't, in good conscience, record a lesson when that book was coming out in two days. So I waited, and I've been digesting that book ever since and thinking a lot about the... Exodus and gathering information from a number of sources, and I'm totally swamped with how much information there is. The the lessons that we're going to cover over the next two or three weeks are the very foundation of of Judaism, and uh, consequently the foundation of Judeo-Christian thought, which as you study it and as you learn about it and as you think about it, you will realize is the foundation for all of Western thought, which means that common law, the law that we as a country in the United States, as we that we inherited from Britain, common law is based on it and common morality. And all of the philosophers that gave rise to the American Revolution, and uh, th- all of these people were were neck deep in Judeo-Christian philosophy and their ideas, the the rights of man, all of these things were given rise, were were pioneered by the Torah, as it is called by the Jews, or the first five books of the Bible. And it's been fascinating to to once again study this, read more about it, and learn even more than I have in the past. Um, and I'm excited to share some of that with you. A few bookkeeping items first. First of all, uh, if you are anxious to get in touch with the program, if you have questions on something we covered in a previous episode, please email the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And we apologize for the state of our website. Uh, the truth is it takes a lot of time just to just to do audio every week, and I had big plans when I launched the podcast that I would do a, a, a concurrent blog post, and I used to do a lot more editing, and I was spending uh, over a dozen hours every week doing my episodes, and it just got to be too much. I almost quit, and I realized I've just got to stick to what I know, which is teach a lesson, do as much of it as I love to do, and that's as much as I've been able to do lately. And I hope in the future that we will be able to keep the website updated. But for right now, uh, that's that's going to go on the shelf for a little bit. So I apologize about that. But please, I will respond to your emails. And I do see that our listenership is growing every week, which makes me very happy. And also, I hear from people who are and not only enjoying the podcast, but who are having... Uh, spiritual experiences from them. It I can't tell you how blessed this makes me feel. It, it's the very reason that I got into this. I felt a hunger in my life to teach the gospel. And if you are benefiting from it, I'd love to hear that. It keeps me going. It's, it's what gets me uh, in front of my microphone every week. So the book of Exodus. First of all, we left the book of Genesis ends with the end of the story of Joseph of Egypt. 
and Joseph charges his descendants. He says, don't leave my body here in Egypt. Take me to Canaan. Take me back to the promised land. And then Joseph dies. Let's, let's spend a minute and review a little bit about what Joseph meant to Egypt. First of all, he saved Egypt from the famine, and he saved Israel from the famine. And then he relocated Israel. And Israel is not just a nation. At this point, Israel is just a person. Israel is the father of Joseph. That was Jacob's name. He was renamed to Israel. So uh, Joseph is responsible for relocating all the people of Israel into Egypt. And they move into a particular part of Egypt called Goshen. And at the time, that was a very blessed part. It was almost like the, the good neighborhood. And the reason they, they got that neighborhood was because Joseph was in such high favor with Pharaoh. So here are the Jews. Uh, they are led by a man who ha- is in high favor with Pharaoh. Now, what did, what did Joseph do for Egypt? He Not only did he save them from the famine, but as the famine got more and more dire, people run out of things to sell in order to buy grain from Pharaoh. And so what do they do? First thing they do is they sell all their livestock to Pharaoh, and then the next year they sell their very land to Pharaoh. And so by the end of the seven years, Pharaoh owned all, almost all of the land except that owned by the priests. He owned, almost all, he owned all the private land in all of Egypt, and he owned all of the livestock. And then he rents it back to people, and they pay him a percentage of everything that they make. So Pharaoh becomes extremely wealthy and powerful because of Joseph. And the Jews benefited from all of that. Now, we can presume, we don't know exactly how this happened. Uh, there is one theory that there was a ruling, a conquering army of, of the Hyksos that took over Egypt for a brief time. We don't know the exact timeline of the story of Joseph or, or Moses, for that matter, um, because they're not recorded. These two Hebrew prophets are not recorded in the histories of Egypt. And I'll, we'll discuss why that might be in a little bit, but uh, for that reason, we don't know exactly what pharaohs they coincide with. And so one of the reasons that uh, that the Jews fell out of favor might have been that there was a shift in the power structure and a different people, native Egyptians, took back over their own government, which did happen. Uh, we don't know if it happened during the the time of the Jews or not, but it may have. In any case... The Jews grew numerous, and uh, it's interesting, in, in Exodus uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says they, they multiplied and increased, and in fact, the wording used in, in the original Hebrew is the same as the, as the commandment given to Adam and Eve in the garden, multiply and replenish the earth. So uh, it almost seems like an intentional inclusion of this language saying the Jews were multiplying and replenishing the earth. Now, Jews believe that there are three creations, that God made three attempts to create a righteous people. First thing he did, obviously, Adam and Eve. And it wasn't too long. Well, first of all, it was not long at all before Cain killed Abel, but it wasn't too long before most of the people on the earth were wicked. And after several generations, several hundred years, God had given up trying. So then he made another attempt to create a righteous world. And he started over with Noah. And he gave Noah what are called by the Jews the Noahide commandments. And these are seven commandments. And uh, they include some of, the, some of the things we think of as the Ten Commandments. And you can, you can Google that. We won't talk about it since Noah isn't the subject of this, but you can Google that term, Noahide commandments. And incidentally, those commandments are what the Jews today believe, that we as Gentiles are responsible. Those are the commandments we're responsible to keep if we want to be, quote-unquote, saved in the kingdom of God. The, the Jewish con- concept of salvation is a little different from the Christian concept. But if we want to receive the blessings that God has for the faithful, as non-Jews, all we have to do is keep those seven, and Jews have 613. So it's a little easier if you're not a Jew for Jews, which is part of what they like about it. They like it to be, they like things to be difficult. Uh, And so, spiritually anyway. And 
So that was the second attempt was creating Noah and his people. And that didn't go so well. It didn't take too long before once again, the earth was wicked. And so on his third try, and, and, and this is sort of our indication, this is how we know that the Jewish perception or the perception of the ancient Hebrews and the perception certainly of the author of Exit, the book of Exodus, which uh, is purportedly Moses, the perception there was that the creation of the nation of Israel within Egypt was God's third attempt at creating the world and having a people that would follow him and serve him. And in fact, in the later on uh, in the wilderness, God says to the nation of Israel that he wants them to be a nation of priests and a holy nation. And when he when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, through thy line, through thy posterity, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we as Latter-day Saints have a particular theory on what that means. Uh, we, and we discussed the Abrahamic covenant. Jews and Christians believe that, that it was the calling of Abraham's people to spread what is known as ethical monotheism. The, the belief in God. Now, uh, when Bry Cox was here and we, on the show and we discussed the creation, one of the ideas we talked about was that the ideas in the Torah, especially the creation story, they, they followed a pattern which was well known in the ancient Near East, but was also was also well outside of the norm. In other words, uh, these the stories of individual gods and how men were created. Number one, it was restricted to a time and place. And with the Torah, what we have is that God created the entire earth. That that Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, created the entire earth. And so that was something that was very different. And and secondly, that He was outside of nature. That He wasn't a God of nature, but that He was a God that superseded nature that that ruled over it and therefore uh god the god of the hebrews was something different and the book of the hebrews is something different and there are dozens of reasons why the bible should not exist and i say that from the perspective of an atheist if you look at the the old testament and the context, the historical and philosophical and demographical context from which it arose, this book literally should not exist. For example, the just to give a few examples, well, yeah, I'll give a few examples and then we'll talk about some, we'll go into more detail on the events. I'll give you a quick sum, summary of the, of the story of Exodus. But a few examples are that the, the book itself doesn't make the hero, heroes always do the right thing. It quite often shows the faults of the Israelites. And there are several other ways in which the Torah just doesn't fit. It's different from all the other holy literature, which was the only kind of literature produced at the time. Which was, uh, some of the other things are that women make up such a powerful influence in the story and we've already seen it uh, in a few cases and uh, that's there's no exception to that in the story of exodus moses is saved several times by women and it's that willingness of the torah to expose the weaknesses of the jews and to feature women prominently and to explain and to expose and to exhibit a God that is so different from every other God at the t of the time that sets the Torah apart, not just marginally apart, but categorically apart from anything that had been produced and would be produced for hundreds of years. And everything that would be produced along those lines would be derivative of the Torah. So this is a powerful, if you've, if you've studied this ancient literature, it's, it's, it's a powerful testimony of the divinity of the Bible. 
it's also a powerful testimony of uh, there are classes that I remember in in the university I attended. There was a class there in the in the humanities department called the Bible as Great Literature. It's a powerful testimony of what a wonderful story it is, and I, I the two stories that received the long the most amount of time are Moses and Joseph in that order. And I, I it's hard for me to decide which one is more compelling, but we'll certainly learn why the story of Moses is compelling as we go. And you, if uh, if you've never seen the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. I'm I'm old enough to remember when it came on TV once a year, and it's a three-hour movie or three and a half-hour movie, and but it's absolutely amazing. It it was Hollywood's project of the year when it came out, and the the chariot race. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Ben Hur, but the uh, it was they're both they're both movies with Charlton Heston, but the uh, the story the the scene where he parts the Red Sea, and the the scene where the finger of God writes on the rock, but you, all of those are uh, are in the are in the movie. So it, it starts at the beginning of Moses's life and extends all the way into the into the wilderness. But uh, the, it, it it depicts the plagues of Egypt. It depicts Moses going in front of Pharaoh. It depicts him in the in the wilderness, seeing the burning bush and all the things that we'll talk about. So with that said, let me let me talk a little bit about a quick summary. And uh, we'll get as far as we can through this lesson, but I already know from the things that I prepared that uh, I'm not going to be able to get through chapter 14, which is where the gospel doctrine lesson ends. And so I'm going to get as far as I can, but I'll give you a quick summary of everything first. And you may remember the story of Moses begins with Joseph. And Joseph dies... The children of Israel go from being the saviors of Egypt at the time of the famine to somebody that Pharaoh is afraid of because they have multiplied and replenished the earth and God has created this righteous people and they're a threat. They become slaves and they are this threat waiting inside of Egypt because the Pharaoh reasons to himself, if we're ever invaded... And this is another reason why historians think that it's possible that uh, Joseph Joseph's time coincided with an invading force because the Pharaoh is thinking about this as if it were a recent event. If we're ever invaded, these Jews are a ready-made insurgent force that would take up arms against us and destroy us from within as we're being attacked from without. There's, there's no way to stop them. All they need are weapons and a little bit of motivation. And all of a sudden, we've got this huge enemy right among us. So they started getting really afraid. All Egyptians did. And Pharaoh was stoking this fear, perhaps for political reasons, or perhaps it was genuine. But he was stoking this fear. Here we have these Hebrews and they're our enemies. So he decides to kill the Hebrew babies, and specifically the men children. And to save, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back and talk about all these events in more detail, but to save his life, Moses' mother put him in an ark. And the word used is the same word used for Noah's ark and sets him in the water, sets him in the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and it's a cute little baby. She falls in love with him and uh, raises him as an Egyptian but he knows he discovers his Hebrew lineage, and he knows he's a Hebrew. And so he sticks up for the Hebrews, and eventually this causes him some problems. He has to leave. So he goes off into the desert and lives there for 40 years. So he lives 40 years in Egypt, lives 40 years in the desert, and Moses has a vision where God says, uh, oh, and towards the end of this 40 years that he spends in the desert, the the burden, the slave burden of the Egyptian, of the Hebrews in the in Egypt is getting worse and worse. And so off in the desert, Moses has a vision where God says, I've heard the cry of the people of Egypt. You're going to go back and free them. So Moses returns to Egypt where he was a hated person and confronts the new Pharaoh and says, 
let my people go, the famous quote from, from this story. Pharaoh, let my, behold, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. God sends plagues on Egypt, one after the other, until finally Pharaoh says yes. And Moses leads the children of Israel out, but Pharaoh changes his mind after they leave. Moses is trapped against the Red Sea, at which point he stretches forth his hand, parts the Red Sea. The children of Israel walk through on dry ground, and then Mo- and then God closes the closes the waters back again upon the pursuing Egyptians, and they all drown. Then, in the wilderness, God instructs Moses to create a tabernacle and. To, which is the first temple. It's a, it's a mobile temple. It's a big tent, a very well-appointed well tent, and it's the, the house of God in the wilderness. And additionally, Moses receives another vision on what is called Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And the Ten Commandments are given there, and he records them on tablets of stone. And the children of Israel spend forty another 40 years in the wilderness with Moses, being led and taught by Moses and by his successor, Joshua. So, that's the story of the book of Exodus. And I wanted to start this, this broadcast, this episode today, with the, the song of Exodus by Bob Marley, but then I did a little research on what that might cost, and... Uh, since I don't have $150,000 to spend on one episode of this podcast, I decided not to do it. But it's a perfect song for what we're discussing. The words are Exodus, movement of jaw people. And we'll discuss why that's so perfect. But uh, first of all, let's get back to some of the things we discussed earlier. and And one of those things was what a powerful effect Exodus has had upon modern civilization. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. The, the, the two seminal events of Jewish history are the Passover and the escape from Egypt, and then the revelation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And if you sum those two events up, they are that God wants his people to be free so the concept of liberty, and then that God wants his people to be beholden to an objective standard of right and wrong. And it was a standard that was totally revolutionary. And, and to sum that up, it's morality. So liberty, the twin pillars of civilization that we know today that we don't even question, they were absolutely new, and they, they boggled everyone's mind at the time. They caused people to hate the Jews, and those are liberty and morality. Those, those concepts did not exist in the way that the Bible taught them. And that's why it's such a revolutionary and amazing book. So the, the, the flight of the slaves from Egypt and the, story, the way the story is to- told, obviously just saying that slaves wanted to not be slaves isn't that revolutionary. But the way the story is told and the way the story of the, the Ten Commandments is told, those are revolutionary and they create these ideas of liberty and morality that were unequaled and, and, and are unequaled to this day. So let's go back a little further and talk about, we talked about what Joseph did for Egypt. But, uh, and we've talked about a little bit about the storytelling. This is a this is a masterpiece. The book of Exodus is a masterpiece of storytelling. And we talked a little bit about the elements of storytelling. The first thing you do to your protagonist is you throw him into a hole so that then you can spend the rest of the story pulling him out. Well, the hole that they create at the beginning, that, and, and obviously, if, if, if you believe in the Bible, this is a true story. So um, just because it's true doesn't mean it's also not powerful storytelling. But the story, the storyteller, and perhaps it's Moses writing his own autobiography, or perhaps he's dictating it, or perhaps there's an editor. But the hole that he's thrown into is that there arose a new pharaoh in Egypt, and this is in uh, it's right away, chapter one, verse eight. 
who did not know Joseph. And uh, the the American writer Bruce Feiler has written that uh, that what that means is that he did not remember Joseph. This is a story of remembering. And if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, and it's spelled S-E-D-E-R, a Seder is a dinner that is almost like a ritual, where each dish has a symbolic meaning. And perhaps there's a, there's a, there are lines spoken as part of the meal. And the, uh, the Jews, observant Jews, have a Passover Seder every year. And this is as commanded in the book of Exodus. And it's because God wanted the Jews to remember the miracle that he created with the Passover. So he caused them to institute it as a feast and as one of their festivals. So the book of Exodus is a book of remembering. So first of all, Pharaoh is not one who, quote-unquote, knows Joseph. In other words, Pharaoh doesn't remember the wonderful things that Joseph did For the pharaohs, number one, he saved the entire country from starvation. But number two, he gave Pharaoh unprecedented power over his own people. And the new Pharaoh was not only not grateful, but placing grievous burdens on the people of Joseph. So the Jews were victims of their own success. They had they had become so wealthy and so powerful and so well-placed, and then they were so prosperous, and they reproduced so quickly that they became a threat to the very country they'd saved. Let's talk about some other places where memory comes into it. Uh, in Exodus 2.24, this is when uh, God remembers his covenant. So God tells Joseph, or God tells, sorry, God tells Moses, I've remembered my covenant. I've seen the plight of the slaves in Egypt. And obviously God always remembers everything. So what he was saying was, I've decided to prioritize this now. I've decided to listen. And I've decided to act on the prayers that I've been receiving. And later on when God the very first Passover, which wasn't a, uh, a memorial. The first Passover was when the children of Israel were actually spared one of the plagues of Egypt. And it's called the Passover because the destroying angel passed over the nation, the children of Israel and didn't smite them. And that's in uh, Exodus 13. And one of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day in Exodus chapter 20. So, uh, the, the book of Exodus is a book of remembering, and it begins with a forgetting, which is that Egypt forgets Israel. What's so great about Israel? Nothing. We hate them. They're our slaves. They're a threat to us. And in fact, they're such a threat. And this, there are so many parallels in the story of Exodus from the Holocaust. Uh, this is a genocide. So the the Pharaoh says, we're going to kill all of the Hebrew, the young Hebrew boys. And there he instructs the midwives, who probably weren't Jewish, throw all male children into the Nile. And the midwives fear God and won't do it. So, luckily for the Hebrews, right? And so, Pharaoh commands all Egyptians to take part in this slaughter. And this is so similar to what happened in the, in the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, where the Jews were being systematically targeted, and people were willing to turn a blind eye as Jews were, were led out from their homes, and they were told people knew what was going on, but they were willing to accept the official story that these Jews were just being shipped away. Rather, they knew they were being slaughtered, and in many cases, the the death camps were just a few miles outside of town, and they just chose to ignore it and turn a blind eye to what was going on. Or in some cases, they took part in it, and they denounced their own neighbors for being Jewish or having Jewish ancestry. 
And it's amazing that uh, such an awful event has so many parallels to something that you would think reading this, well, it gives us a better insight into how terrible it was because we've all seen many stories of Nazi Germany and the Jews were mistreated that badly. So Joseph, and and this is one of the compelling things about the, the, sorry, not Joseph, Moses. This is one of the compelling things about the character of Moses is that he is given every privilege. His mother doesn't want him to die, so she hides him for three months. And then she puts him in an ark. And an ark is a boat without any sort of sail or rudder. It just floats. And the symbolism here is that God is guiding it. And she places it in the reeds where she knows Pharaoh's... I mean, she had a plan. It doesn't say in the Bible that that Moses' mother had a plan, but she had a plan that Pharaoh's daughter was going to find her son, it seems to me. And and so, sure enough, and she sends uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, to watch what happens to the baby. Sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter comes and finds a basket with a child in it and brings it up. Now, we don't know exactly, and different movies... There's another excellent movie about the story of Moses, and that is The Prince of Egypt. It's it's an animated film, but it's it's wonderful, and it happens to be on Netflix right now, and I watched it uh, a few days ago, and it's just fun. Uh, but it shows the, his horror when he discovers that he's a Hebrew, and how, uh, and then he realizes that the these people that are being mistreated every day right in front of him are his people. Now, we don't know that from the book of Exodus. That was some dramatic license, but we... So it may not have been a secret. In fact, uh, Moses was raised by his true mother for three years. He was nursed by her, which was a, a deal that Miriam worked out with Pharaoh's daughter on the sly. But... Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. And so one day he sees a an Egyptian slave master beating a slave and he kills the Egyptian. And we aren't given a lot of details about this. But we can assume that Moses acted honorably. And we can assume that either the beating was life-threatening. There are different legends about this. One says that uh, this was a person who had planned to destroy Moses all along. And so attacked him. And one legend, and this is uh, the, the Quran, tells us that there was, a, there was a woman being raped. And Moses comes to her rescue. In any case, Moses kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And then the next day, he sees two Jews fighting. And one of them is in the wrong. And, he, and, and this man, so he tries to intervene in the intercede in the fight and... The, the one who's in the wrong says, oh, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So then, of course, Moses realizes everyone knows about this. And we don't know whether it's because Moses is known as a Jew or because what he did was illegal, but a death sentence is passed on Moses' head, so he flees. And this is sort of the beginning, the inciting incident in the story, that Moses has to run away into the desert. And there he encounters the Midianites, and Jethro, his, who becomes his father-in-law, and his wife Zipporah, his daughter, who are, who are nomads. Uh, they're what we might think of today as Bedouins. And he lives among them for 40 years, has children and everything. And we don't know exactly when the events of the book of Moses took place. And when Moses receives the revelations recorded in the book of Moses that we have in the Pearl of Great Price. But, uh, so the two options are, number one, during this 40 years that Moses spent in the desert, he became a prophet, God showed himself to him, and then uh, Moses was instructed by God and received those revelations. Or, Moses just had the directive, go back to Egypt and free the enslaved Jews and bring them, and God even says, you will come back and worship me in this very spot. So then when Moses comes back, that's when he receives the instructions in the book of, uh, instruction described in the book of Moses. I kind of think that it was the first, 
the first one is the real case because uh, Moses was a powerful prophet. He was already a, a miracle worker and a very powerful man when he went back to to confront, and a faithful prophet when he went back to confront Pharaoh. So during these 40 years in the wilderness, Moses, according to my personal opinion, Moses has been exposed to all the creations of God. I mean, read again the first chapter of the book of Moses. It's just an amazing revelation. And Moses had been tempted by Satan. And so becomes a powerful prophet. And one day Moses sees the burning bush. And we're going to spend a few minutes talking about his revelation at the burning bush. And specifically that the name of God. So God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses sees this bush burning, and then he looks and he, and he realizes it's not being consumed. And he says to himself, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing and pay attention to this because God is showing me something. In the Joseph Smith translation, we have that the word again added. So that's another reason to think that Moses was already... Uh, well along the way to becoming the prophet that he would, that we know him as already by this point. In any case, God tells Moses, you're going to go back and save my children. And Moses gives him a few reasons why he can't do it. The first one is that, who am I? They're not going to believe me. And it's, this is an interesting contrast because Moses is Moses is called the the meekest of men later in the book of numbers. Moses's first response is who am I? When Moses appears in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's first response is who is God? And that is a a, a sentiment that we see echoed in the book of Mormon later. Uh you can look that up in Alma chapter 9, I think it's verse 6 and and in Mosiah there are two different peoples that are rebelling. Uh, Mosiah chapter 11. They're rebelling against the people of God, and they say, who is God that he should command us to do this, to be righteous? So Moses has the exact opposite view, which is, who am I that I should be called upon to do God's work? And I always thought when I read this story as a kid that Moses is uh, objecting. I, I'm slow of speech, and so therefore I shouldn't be sent back to be thy spokesman. And the word for prophet in in Hebrew is navi, and navi actually just means spokesman. So prophet is a spokesman for God. He's the mouthpiece of God. And Moses is saying, I'm, I'm not a mouthpiece. I always thought that maybe he was just being a little bit self-deprecating or perhaps even falsely modest, because obviously he's the leader, he's a great leader, he can't be a poor speaker. But now, when I read this, I realize Moses, when he stood up to the Egyptian against the Hebrew, he stood up with violence. And uh, the first the first thing he does when he arrives among the Midianites is he, he saves Jethro's daughters from some shepherds. And so Moses is a bold man. When he wants to, when he wants to show courage, he can. When he stands against the two Hebrews, he has to do it with words, and in that case, he's unsuccessful. So we have already one example where Moses isn't so good at getting his ideas across. Now, did he have a stutter? Was he just flustered when he was in front of people? Uh, we don't know exactly, but I actually now believe Moses was in fact a weak speaker. And this is just fascinating to me. This is such a powerful lesson. And it takes me back to my what is rapidly becoming my favorite verse in all of Scripture, Ether 1227. And if you haven't heard me mention it enough, then I'm going to mention it again. But I, the Lord, behold, if men come to me, I will show unto them their weakness. Behold, I, the Lord, give unto men weakness that they may be humble. Well, we already know in Moses' case that it had worked. God had given him this weakness that he couldn't speak. And his whole life, he probably felt like 
a little bit less than. But the book of Numbers says there was no one there was no one as meek as Moses in all the world. And in the early history of the United States and for centuries, in fact, this was a proverb, the meekness of Moses, because of that verse. So Moses was known for his meekness uh, in spite of his great power. So a lot of times we think, what is, you know, what is your slowness of speech? We think, you know, I, I have this terrible weakness and we don't realize that God may have destined us for greatness and it's not in spite of our weakness. In fact, the, the weakness is the very key that unlocks our opportunities. And that was certainly the case for Moses. It may be the case for all of us, it may not, but it's definitely worth thinking about how God did that with Moses and looking at our weaknesses in a new light, that maybe this is part of the the plan God, God has for us is if we can be humble enough, which is the very point of Ether 1227, if we can be humble enough, then we may just have greatness not in spite of our weaknesses. We just may have greatness with our weaknesses, because of our weaknesses. Okay, so Moses uh, objects, first of all, to the fact he can't speak. And then he says, I don't know your name. Who am I going to say sent me? God. And God gives Moses his name. And we're going to spend a few minutes talking about this, and I'm going to do it without apology. And here's why. Of all of the Hebrew words that you might learn, the name of God is the most important one. And we'll we'll spend maybe a, an equivalent amount of time in the book of Isaiah when it comes time to talk about the phrase good tidings, because that's where we get our word gospel from. But even more important than that is the what's called the tetragrammaton, which means the four-letter word. This is the original four-letter word, the name of God in Hebrew. So Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? And God responds with two, and I'm going to freely give you some Hebrew concepts here. And you can take notes, you can forget them, you can learn them, you can just listen for fun. But I'm going to get into detail about it because to me it's fascinating and I think it's important to know. So the first thing that God says is, tell them, or, or my name is, I am that I am. But he doesn't say, tell them that. He just tells Moses that. Then he says, tell them Yahweh. Y-H-W-H is how it's spelled. Or at least that's the transliteration. That's the Romanization. The Hebrew letters are yud Hey vav Hey, which is Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. And as we know, or as you may know, biblical Hebrew has no vowels. And so we have to guess at the, what the vowels might be. And Jewish scholars have done their best guesses as to what those old vowels were. And now they put vowels in the form of diacritical marks around the Hebrew letters. And so the way this word is generally pronounced is Yahweh. And another, but there are actually more than 1,300 ways in which the Tetragrammaton can be pronounced. And one of those is Jehovah. And that's the one we use most often in English, but perhaps the one that's closest to uh, what what the original pronunciation would have been is Yahweh. So those are the same word. God says, you, first of all, he says, I am that I am. And then he says, tell them that Yahweh sent you. Now, Yahweh is a verb. And it is a form of the verb to be. So the first thing that God says is, I am that I am. Meaning that, uh, well, not meaning. Uh, the words are, ayeh. The Hebrew verbs come from what is called a root. And then, much like some languages where the subject can be understood by the verb, in Hebrew they're in fact included in the verb. 
So added to the root might be a prefix, which is the subject of the verb. And then the, the tense of the verb is a little weird. In Hebrew, there is no future tense. There is only imperfect, which means something that hasn't been finished, and perfect, which is the past. And we'll get into that more when we talk about Isaiah. And it's why sometimes those tenses are so confusing, where you, you're not quite sure. Is Isaiah talking about the future? Is he talking about the past? Is he prophesying, or is he saying something that's happening right now? It's because it's actually quite difficult to translate a language. To them, it was very clear, and they knew by the context. But to us, uh, and to sometimes to the translators of the King James Version especially, uh, it wasn't exactly clear what time period they were talking about. Well, the time period that there is no word in Hebrew for I am, it's just I. I am Mark, you would say I Mark. Well... So the word for I am actually kind of means I will be. So one meaning of this phrase, it's trans, it's rendered in the King James Version, I am that I am. But another way to translate it would be, I will be who I will be. Yet there, are, there are actually quite a few ways you can you can translate this depending on what the context is. Another way is, I will be who I am, or I am who I will be. So one way to look at the the name of God that he gives to Moses is, I never change. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is um, an actual quote that God gives in other places in Scripture. But he's telling, and so eye means, and the, the, the stem in Hebrew is, I'm sorry, the root is Y-H-Y, or I'm sorry, H-Y-H. And the reason I say that is the word Yahweh is also from this same root, H-Y-H, which becomes in some cases H-W-H. And then the prefix Y, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. So, A-Y and Yahweh are two forms of the same verb. Aye, I am, Yahweh, he is. So when, and so I am, Aye, Asher, who, Aye, I am. I am who I am. Why am I going through all this? It's because there is some controversy about what the word Yahweh actually means. A lot of people just say, well, it simply means he is. But that's not exactly true. There wouldn't be any controversy if Yahweh were a commonly used form of the verb to be. But it's actually a form that doesn't exist anywhere else. So most people say, well, uh, and, and, and it's the what's called the causative stem. Now, Hebrew roots or verbs in there, what, what might be the, we might think of as the equivalent of the infinitive Hebrew roots have a lot of different stems, which can give them different meanings. So one is the indicative stem, or one is the passive stem, and one is the causative stem. So the verb might be kill. And if you say something in causative, what you're saying is, and it's just a, a slight change of one vowel sound, and an, and, and you put a, an apostrophe in there, and then it becomes, you cause someone to be killed rather than you killed them. So, the, the grammatical form of Yahweh is the causative, meaning, instead of he is, it means he causes to be. The problem is, most linguists think that the verb to be, or the verb HWH, it has no causative form. And to me, that's not a problem because... Once God says, this is my name, nobody ever uses that form of the verb again. The other problem that linguists have that with this being the meaning of God's name is that it's a transitive verb, meaning it should have an object. So God causes something to exist. There, there should be a something. And uh, the, the, most, the easiest example to think of is the Lord of hosts. 
Now, it's interesting, that is actually a sentence in Hebrew. The Lord of hosts means he causes armies to exist. Isn't that interesting? The word Jehovah, Jehovah, whenever you see the Lord translated in in small caps in the King James Version, it actually means Jehovah, he causes to exist. So the Lord of hosts means he he causes armies to exist. And because it's God, you can think of him as a, the hosts as a heavenly host or a host of angels. So it's, it's he who brings armies of angels into existence. It's very closely related to the idea we've discussed of a prince of peace. It's also a testimony. He causes to exist, but he also exists. So it's a testimony saying he lives. Do you see why it's so fascinating to talk about the meaning of the name of God? So because it's a form of the verb to be, but because there are only two he- two tenses in Hebrew, it also it also says he will create. He create he creates and he will create. So the very name of God is a testimony that he is a creator and that he exists outside of time. He creates and he will create forever. And this is a this is a new idea. The when when Moses appears before Pharaoh, Pharaoh believes in a, what's called an Ennead, a pantheon of nine Egyptian gods, and these gods change over time. It's hard to pinpoint exactly which gods that Pharaoh would have believed in. But Moses appears, and he's talking about a god named Yahweh, and this is a new name that God hasn't been known by until this time. And he's, he's saying, and so everything that Moses does from this point on is a contrast between God and the gods of the Egyptians and the, and the traditions of the Egyptians, the very belief in what God, what a God is to the Egyptians. God is the creator, not within nature. So the, the gods of the Egyptians are natural gods. They're created by nature. They're part of nature. And Moses's God is outside of nature. He pre-exists the, the creations rather than, you know, coming to birth. One of the myths of the Egyptians is that the, the sky goddess swallows the sun at night and creates it and every morning gives birth to it in the morning. So these gods are created by nature and part of nature. And Yahweh is totally different from that. So Moses goes back and... God reveals to him, you'll have a tough time with Pharaoh. He's not going to let the slaves go. Moses' first demand is, let us just go three days into the wilderness. And and we need to worship God. We need to have sacri- perform sacrifices unto him. And then we have three days to come back. So he's asking for a week off. Now, Pharaoh's no dummy. He, he's afraid of the Egyptians, but he also knows that if he sends them away, they're slaves. They're never coming back. So he says, okay, leave your families here. And then he says, leave your children here or leave your livestock here. And, and Moses each time says, no, we need all our children so that we can worship. We need our families and we need all our livestock because they're going to be our sacrifices. And so Pharaoh says, well, and, and this is over the course of the plagues as well, which we'll talk about in a second. And Pharaoh says, well, do your sacrifices right here. And Moses says, no, because you worship the animals that we're going to be sacrificing. And this is Mo- Moses' gentle way of mocking uh, the gods of the Egyptians, saying, yeah, we the, the gods that you worship, these animals that you think are so great, yeah, we, we sacrifice them in our religion and... Um, basically saying, your gods are not powerful. Your gods are dead. So Pharaoh immediately is resistant to the idea and says no. And he is so offended by it and so threatened by it that he takes away the, the Hebrews have to make a bunch of bricks every day and he takes away their supplies. He says, you have to gather your own straw, but your quota will not be diminished. So he 
he greatly increases their workload and greatly increases their beatings. Already they have, they're, they're horribly oppressed. And this turns the entire nation who originally they accepted Moses as a prophet because of the signs that God told them to do. And this turns the nation of Israel against Moses. So Moses has to, God commands Moses to send plagues. And if you've heard, if you remember the plagues of Egypt, there are things like, first of all, the first plague is that Moses puts his rod into the Nile and it turns to blood. And then he sends frogs and then he sends lice and then he sends flies and boils and hail. So there are 10 plagues that afflict the nation of Egypt. And the interesting observation, and this observation is made in a number of of places, but the, the, the interesting observation about each of these plagues is they're each targeted at a specific member of the, well, a, a specific group of gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And we don't know exactly who the gods are because we don't know the timeline. These gods changed all the time. We don't know the timeline when Moses was there, but there was a god, for example, of the Nile. And uh, there was a god of the of the, whose head was a frog. And there were gods of each member of the livestock that was threatened by the hail. And there was a goddess of the sky. There were three, there was a time of darkness. One of the plagues was just darkness where the sky was blotted out. And there was a god of the earth who caused crops to grow. And then along come locusts who eat all of it. And at each point, Moses, uh, Moses, sends a plague that says, your God is powerless. Your God is dead. Jehovah is the God who is over all of these things. And the first plague was also had it, they added symbolism that blood comes from the Nile. So no one could drink from the Nile. No one could get life from the Nile. Nile was their life. It was the lifeblood of Egypt. And all of a sudden, all the Hebrew babies, all the Hebrew children they'd thrown into the Nile, their blood is coming back. And the Nile no longer gives them life, but gives them brings death with it. So that was a powerful symbol. But the final plague is the one that is the most uh, memorable. And that was the plague of slaying of the firstborn. And we need to talk about what it meant when... what. Uh, now we, we are returning again to the symbolism of the firstborn. We ta- we've talked many times about how First of all, God has said to to the ancient Hebrews, he said, the, the firstborn son will have a double portion. He has the rights of the birthright. But then the pattern is broken, starting with Cain and Abel, all the way down through Noah's children, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of their sons were not the firstborn, and yet they received the birthright. And this was a symbol of Christ, because Adam was the firstborn. He was the first proxy sacrifice. He was the firstborn of God. He was the first created man. And he was the author, the agent of the fall. And Christ, being the more righteous son, was the agent of setting that right. And, and so, when we look at the spiritual history of man on the earth, we think Adam should have been the one to get it right, and Christ is the one who actually got it right. Now, that's a sort of a naive way to look at the fall, but it's a powerful symbol, nonetheless, of the firstborn serving the child, the second son who was the righteous one. And when Moses first appears before Pharaoh, he says, Behold, Israel is my firstborn, meaning the nation of Israel is, is, my, is my chosen son. So this is an interesting thing because um, that there are times in the scriptures when those, the followers of Jesus are called the church of the firstborn, and Jesus is called the firstborn. And then there are times when... Jesus seems to be more accurately represented by one of the sons who isn't the firstborn. But Moses appears before Pharaoh and says, Egypt is my firstborn. And then 
the final plague. And this is the one that convinces Pharaoh. Each time Pharaoh says, okay, if you will take this plague away, I will let you go out and do your worshiping. And then he changes his mind once the plague leaves. But the final plague is the all the firstborn children die throughout Egypt. Firstborn children, firstborn sons, and the firstborn of all their flocks, all their, all their livestock. And the only way to save yourself from this... Now, previous plagues, the, Egypt, the Israelites were just spared naturally. But in this final plague, they had to do something. And this is powerful symbolism. They had to, first of all, they had to take a lamb and they had to tend that lamb for five days. And then they had to kill it in a certain way without breaking a bone of its body. And they had to take the blood and they had to dip it in some, in some leaves. And then they had to sprinkle it on the posts of their door and on the top post of their door. And the promise was that any house that ha- was so protected that had the blood of the lamb would be passed over. And to a Christian audience, this has the obvious symbolism of the blood of Christ, the blood of the lamb. Christ is called the lamb. And we believe that the whole purpose of all of the sacrifices in the law of Moses was to point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the the Jews, so the Jews did this, and they had learned. Um, one of the plagues was hail, and the hail was so big. And if you've ever been to Egypt, the the precipitation rate in Egypt is extremely low. And they will go. There are years where they have no rain at all. Uh, they, it's one of the lowest rainfall countries on earth, and. The way that they lived was by the annual flooding of the Nile, and that's why they worshiped the Nile. And they had a god, the god Hapi was the god of the flooding of the Nile. They didn't subsist on rainfall. They had a very predictable, and this is one of the reasons they were so prosperous, they had a very predictable agriculture based on flooding. And then all of a sudden, this huge hailstorm, and it says that it's worse than any hailstorm that had ever been in Egypt. And it and Moses gave out the commandment, and he said, Pharaoh, tell people that they better get inside. If anybody who's inside, and they bring their slaves, and they bring their livestock inside, they will be spared. And if they're out in the fields, they'll be, they'll be killed. That's how big this hail is going to be. And that's how it happened. And I don't know whether the Israelites learned from that experience or not, that they better listen to the prophet, and they better listen to him quick. And they better get it exactly right, because when the prophet speaks, it might be within hours a matter of life or death. And that might be what happened. That might be the place they learned the lesson that they needed for the Passover, because there were a lot of very specific instructions. One of them was to to act the way I've described with this lamb, but they, uh, another one was they have to take all the leaven or the yeast out of their house and burn it. And then they have to eat a very specific meal. So they were to eat the lamb, the meat of the lamb, and they were to eat bread with no yeast in it, flat bread, and they were to eat bitter herbs. And all these things had a very specific meaning. The bitter herbs symbolized their slavery in Egypt, and the flat bread symbolized their haste. This was the night before they were going to leave. And so they ate their bread in haste with their shoes on their feet and standing up meaning there was no time to wait for bread to rise. They had to eat quickly and leave. And the the lamb symbolized Christ, obviously. And all of these things were done, and, and they were taught to the children, and it was immediately commanded. It wasn't even commanded later. It was commanded right then, you're going to do this same meal. You're going to get it exactly like this, and you're going to do it every year from now on. You're going to always remember this. And that is, this. the Passover is the seminal event in the Old Testament. It is, it is the Old Covenant. So when you think about the New Testament and the Old Testament, what, is the, what does that actually mean? The New Testament describes the words the New Testament 
mean new covenant, they describe the moment in which Christ shares the sacrament with his disciples. And the words Old Testament, they mean Old Covenant, they describe this covenant that God makes with Israel, that if you will obey me and if you will follow the prophet with exactness and with haste, then you will be passed over when the destroying angel comes. Now, there's a lot more to talk about, not only in the book of Exodus, but even in the chapters that we would have normally covered entirely today up through chapter 14. But we're out of time for this episode, so this is the end of part one. And I think the takeaway for me is that, number one, God is the God of the whole earth. And number two, God wants us to be free, and he wants us to be moral. And number three, God prepared Moses like he prepares us for our life through the things that we think are our weaknesses. God gave Moses a halted speech. God gave Moses a broken home of terrible upbringing where he was separated from his family. And Moses rose from all of those things, and and then God separated him from the country he loved just because Moses wanted to stand up for what was right. And so when we go through the days of our lives and we think um, things are going wrong for me and I, I tried to follow God. I tried to listen to his voice and look where it got me. That is the point of telling such a compelling story, of, of using all of the techniques of storytelling and relating the story of Exodus, is so that we can put ourselves in the place of Moses and see that not only does God have these, not only is God the powerful God who lives outside of nature and is ever, ever the same, unchanging the creator of the lord of uh, of the creator of the heavenly armies but he's the god who can be with our mouth as he told moses i will be with thy mouth you think that because you have a speech impediment that you have an excuse not to be my spokesperson but guess what you don't because i will be with thy mouth that's the lesson for us whatever our weakness is god will be with our weakness And he has a work for us to perform. He has a calling for us. If we will choose, when we see a burning bush, we will say, I'm going to step aside from the path that I've been on, and I'm going to look at this thing because God has something to show me. And then when God says, I've got a a work for you to perform, and I will be with your weakness, then we do what Moses did. And we set on that new path with courage. And I pray we can. I hope you'll join me for part two. And I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.